our bodies are changing continuously based on our thoughts and our ideas and our fears. So uh, if I walk up the stairs, my heart rate goes up. If I am nervous, my hands shake. If I'm hot, my face goes red. If I'm upset, water comes from my eyes. If I change, you know, if I'm anxious about something, I might get stomach upset. So our bodies are continuously changing based on very small changes in our environment, very small changes in what we're doing, based on anxieties, based on the attention we pay for to our body. And that creates this enormous mass of things happening to our bodies that doctors can investigate and label. And I would like us to start dialing that down a little bit and saying, you know what, sometimes... Welcome to Priorities, the podcast about the things in life that really matter. I'm your host, journalist and coach Lily Silverton, and each week, along with a roster of incredible guests, I'll be exploring how priorities inform and transform our lives, sharing mindset tips, strategies, tools, and inspiration to help you prioritize your own life. We'll be covering what we think is important and unimportant, what we'd like to work on a little more, and the moments that changed our priorities and lives forever. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, and author of three critically acclaimed non-fiction books. Suzanne specializes in the investigation of complex epilepsy, but also has an active interest in psychogenic or psychosomatic disorders. So this would be, for example, when someone experiences seizures, almost identical to those of an epileptic one, except there's no known physical cause. They're not making them up. They're not faking them. It's a real physical experience that originates in the unconscious mind. Such fascinating stuff. And the grounding for her books, the first It's All in Your Head won both the Welcome Book Prize and the Royal Society of Biology Book Prize. And she's since published a further two fantastic books exploring the mind-body connection, Brainstorm in 2018 and The Sleeping Beauties in 2020. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I um, have two of your three books next to me, and I've been very immersed in your world for the last uh, couple of weeks reading them. Well, I hope it hasn't been too difficult. <laughs> it's been wonderful. You're, you're an excellent writer. Really, really. Thanks. So it's about 10am now. Have you got a morning routine of any sort? Um, well, uh, I work from home on a Tuesday. Um, I'm normally, I'm the sort of person who wakes up like super early, although I have just returned from a holiday, so that didn't count for today's routine is different. But uh, I just wake up super early and just start working straight away. And I've got a bunch of patients who come into the hospital on a Monday to have, they all have kind of weird sort of symptoms, seizures of different sorts or funny experiences happening to them that uh, need to be explained and because they only happen every now and again they can be really hard to explain because when they're with the doctor they're always 100% fine so what I do is I I've got six beds in the unit I work in and on a Monday I admit a bunch of patients into those beds so that we can literally sort of wait and watch until this weird thing they've been describing happens to them so usually my Tuesday routine as I get up and I look through the videos that have been recording for the last 24 hours to see if anything kind of weird or wonderful has happened. And it's actually quite sort of, you know, I've been doing that for years, um, looking at videos of people who are described weird experiences. 
And I am still surprised on a regular basis at the things that I see in those videos, you know, the things that are happening to people and the things people are living with that they've just been describing to doctors for ages. And then, you know, nobody really believes them. And then you see it and it's always more startling than you're kind of expecting. So that's really my Tuesday morning is kind of looking back through those videos and hoping that we kind of caught that elusive moment that they've been describing for years. And I'll spend kind of the best part of Tuesday morning doing that. Um, I like to, I'm a morning person, so I'm extremely productive in the morning. And then sort of in the afternoon, I'm doing more paperwork stuff. But then I sort of, I'm very much a tailing off at the end of the day kind of person. Uh, I have tons of enthusiasm in the morning and the evening. I'm just thinking, oh, I'd love to read a book now, or I'd love to just watch some really absolute rubbish on the television, for example. But yeah. So what I should be doing at this moment is looking at videos of my patients, but I'll do it a bit later today than normal. Thanks for giving me some of your some of your morning. Do you take any time for yourself in that? Um, or do you just go straight into work? Oh, no, I go straight into work um, because it's sort of, do you know, I have the when I was a child, you know, on a Friday you get homework for the weekend. You know, I was the child who came home and did their homework on Friday evening and had it all done by like, you know, seven o'clock on Friday, because I've got that's I'm I'm at my most comfortable when everything needs to be done has been done. And that means that in the evening, you know, I'm I feel completely relaxed because like I'm up to date. Um, I'm definitely one of those people that on the phone, you know, uh, there's lots of people have lots of those red dots with 20s and 1000 and something emails that they haven't looked at. You will never find a red dot on my phone. You know, it's sort of so I like to get up in the morning. I know what I have to do for the day. I get down to it. If I wake at six, I'll start at six. If I wake at seven, I'll start at seven Um, just get it done, because that kind of gives me a lot of kind of um, I'm comforted by being up to date. Also, it means I enjoy my evenings much more because everything is done that should have been done. I know that sounds kind of annoying to people who prevaricate and put things off, <laughs> but my I get mental ease from being up to date. I feel the same way. Do you have, do you really feel it's a natural trait that you've got or do you have any tricks or tools that you can share for people who are more likely, as you say, to put things off? I honestly think looking at myself as a child and, and how I was, that it's just naturally how I am. But I would say to people who put things off that, you know, tr try it for a week or two, this sort of, um, you know, getting down to things immediately, because it's phenomenally um, rewarding. And also, um, although it might feel difficult in the morning time when you sort of kind of get into have to get into something so quickly, you know, you you reap the reward very quickly because you're re you're reaping it by the end of the day. This feeling that, you know, that all the boxes are ticked and that, and that uh, you are up to date with things is a lovely feeling. I think it's it's just how I'm built. I'm I'm made. I feel better if I know that I don't have lots of stuff waiting. Um, but I would encourage people to try and train themselves because it's very calming in the afternoon. You have a lovely afternoons and evenings if you do things that way. Mm. I'm thinking of, do you know Mel Robbins, who's a self-development um sort of coach and writer she's got a lot of books out and she has written a book 
which is, I don't remember if it's called this or if it's all around this, but this, the principle of basically counting to five and then just getting something done. So whatever it is that you don't want to do, you don't want to get out of bed, you don't want to do your emails, you don't want to do your paperwork, you don't want to start that essay, whatever it is, you just count five, four, three, two, one, and you just do it before your brain can get in the way. Okay. Do you know what? I, I, I want to correct. I'm not like super brilliant at doing every, there are things I don't want to do. <laughs> like the things I don't want to do are like, I hate like, you know, finding a builder to fix the roof, which I had to do recently. I hate doing things like that. Mm. And I will prevaricate on, on the things that I just don't do regularly that I really hate doing. So I will use that um, trick the next time I face one of those things. Thanks for the advice. And really as well, and it's like habits, right? And we're going to go, we're going to lead us very well onto what you do yeah. because you can train the brain. Like the more that you're doing something, the more that you immediately choose to do a task, the more likely your brain is to find that easy to do. Yeah, correct? I think habit is absolutely so important to so many aspects of life. I mean, lots of people complain of difficulty sleeping, for example. I mean, sleep is, I'm not saying it's a solution to everything, but it's about habit. It's about routine. Um, and as you say, getting up in the morning, if you do the same thing every morning, it could be an unhealthy thing or a healthy thing. But once the habit is developed, you know, it's it's it just is becomes quickly ingrained. I mean, I wish it was easy. I do think habit, you know, eating, sleeping, working um, keeping things up to date, keeping, you know, every all household chores, etc. It's all about habit. Which makes it sound so easy, doesn't it? Um, mm. It makes it sound like you should just be automatically be able to do everything perfectly. I do. I do think it's about habit, but I don't want to suggest that I think habits are easy to establish. And of course, in my work, as you alluded to, as a doctor, habit is can be something that leads to illness or leads to, um, you know, habit can lead to good patterns and bad patterns, and those bad patterns can lead to illness. So it's pretty important to my work as well. Yeah. So let's move on to your to your first main priority, which is raising awareness of the over medicalization mm. in uh, yeah. in the treatment of illness yeah. and normalizing the mind body interaction. So, yeah. so explain I, to someone who has very little idea what that means. What that means. So I mean. As a doctor, when you're training as a, as a junior doctor, you're sort of really being trained to look for disease. That's what everything is about. You're looking for disease. If you don't find disease, you're potentially, you know, that's there. You might be punished. So everything is focused on explaining every bodily change through disease. Um, and, and over time from in medicine, that has become a worse and a worse thing. So it used to be that, and I'm not saying these particular statements are correct or whatever, but, you know, if you got aches and pains when you were five years old, your mom would say they're growing pains, stop complaining about them. Or, you know, we 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 were a little bit more dismissive of physical symptoms or we just called them by names that were um, sort of just colloquialisms, really, that said that we're saying to the person, this is something normal that will pass. Now, over time, um, we are increasingly inclined to look for disease-related explanations for every kind of bodily change that we have. So first of all, doctors are primed to look for diseases because that's our job. Um, 
also, you know, as I said, if we miss disease, that's something for which we will be punished um, potentially. Um, so if you come to me with any kind of medical symptom, I will be desperate to make sure I get the right disease diagnosis and you will be potentially desperate for a name for what's going on with you to, so that you can fully understand what's happening to you. Um, so both through sort of the way that doctors are trained to give names to things, to give labels to things, to never miss a disease, to keep looking until they find the disease, and all to, also through societal's, the society's kind of increasing fear that something will be missed and increasing need to have labels for things. Um, that's also creating sort of, um, you know, increasing kind of labeling of what could potentially be called normal kind of bodily changes that happen over time. Um, as a junior doctor, I was seeing patients who had lots of things like um, seizures and paralysis and so forth. And I, I my fear of missing a disease was such that... Um, I could spend an awfully long time looking for diseases because I thought that was the most important and fundamental part of my job. Um, and that could mean doing lots of scans and lots of tests, even if I didn't at the fundamental kind of heart of me believe that the, any of these tests were going to be abnormal, I could spend a lot of time doing them. Now, as an older doctor, there's even more tests I can do. You know, when I qualified, you could just do this two scans and, you know, three blood tests. Now I can do 20 scans and, you know, a thousand blood tests for the same medical complaint from 20 years ago. So the capacity to continue looking for diseases in this kind of endless way, even when you really don't entirely believe you're going to find one, um, the capacity for that has just become sort of, I could spend, the, you know, if you came to me, for example, um, with sort of dizziness, for example, you know, 20 years ago, I might not have done any tests because there weren't many available for that. And I might have diagnosed you clinically. Now I can do, you know, a dozen tests um, just to explain that. And that might take me three years. What I'm building up to here is the consequence of this is that we're medicalizing physical changes that um, don't necessarily need to be medicalized, that basically we, we know they probably are just um, minor symptoms that will pass. But the minute we start doing lots and lots of tests, that forces a person to be worried about what's happening to them. That forces a person to pay attention to their body in what can be an unnatural way. Um, and that can actually make the whole thing worse. You know, if you go to your doctor with a headache and your doctor is a reliable and trustworthy sort of doctor and they give a good examination and they spend time with you that makes you feel that they have fully understood what you're describing. And then at the end of it, they say, um, actually, I don't think this headache has a very serious cause. And if you make a few lifestyle changes, I think it'll get better. Many people will feel better with that. But now medicine is such that we'll say, but we'll also do a scan and then the scan after the scan and the other test and the other test. And I think this kind of leads to the medicalization of transient phenomena that just actually makes people worse. Doctors think they're doing the best thing. And even people think they're getting the best possible treatment because I think some people perceive that the more scans your doctor does, the better doctor that you are. Um, I think it's very often the opposite, you know, that if you're able to make the clinical diagnosis and not ruin the next two years of someone's life with unnecessary tests, then you are the better doctor. So I want to really, that's a very, very long explanation. 
I feel like, um, first of all, that there's a lot of normal phenomena that happen to our bodies that we unnecessarily investigate without understanding the harm that can do to us psychologically. Also, the harm that can do to us physically, because we've only had these scans for 20 years. We don't know everything that's happening inside the body. It's a bit like sort of looking at the surface of the moon. Once we people are end up kind of living up there, as people now suggest, you know, they're going to find things that they don't know what they are. And that's what happens with scans. And then you increase people's anxiety. But obviously, the focus of my work is also psychosomatic symptoms, so the mind-body connection. All of our bodies are changing continuously based on our thoughts and our ideas and our fears. So if I'm, uh, if I walk up the stairs, my heart rate goes up. If I am nervous, my hands shake. If I'm hot, my face goes red. If I'm upset, water comes from my eyes. If I change, you know, if I'm anxious about something, I might get stomach upset. So our bodies are continuously changing based on very small changes in our environment, very small changes in what we're doing, um, based on anxieties, based on the attention we pay for to our body. And that creates this enormous mass of things happening to our bodies that doctors can investigate and label. And I would like us to start dialing that down a little bit and saying, you know what, sometimes when you walk up the stairs and your heart rate goes up, that's because you're not particularly fit and you can work on that. Or hands shaking when you're nervous or is a normal phenomenon and maybe just don't worry about it so much. So it's really um, my focus is on both helping people understand that our body is constantly changing based on environment and psychological well-being. And that it's not necessarily always a good thing to pursue every symptom. It can lead to more harm than good. Wow, that was a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> very good. You're very easy to interview. I barely need to ask any questions. <laughs> I apologize. It's ideal for me. Sometimes people only get one question in, so but your first one better be a good one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this um just going back to what you said about the attachment to labels that we have and this um you know thing when you go to the doctor and of course the more tests that a doctor is willing to to give you the more thorough I guess that you think they're being the better you think they are Mm. and wanting a label for yourself to understand it to make sense of it is that something to do with the brain like not liking not knowing what's going on absolutely I think we like what our brains want is they want to understand things and they want to have an explanation for things. And that, you know, it's it's so much easier um, to sort of live with something if you have an understanding of what's causing it. Our brains just like to make sense of things. Mm. Um, and you can completely understand how having a label for something, you know, if a person is feeling down, um, there's different ways of approaching that. For some people you know, if, or maybe, um, yeah, I think feeling down or being depressed is, 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 is a reasonable example. So, you know, is our moods go up and down and they go up and down often with life changes more than anything else, you know, but to get sort of a, a mental health label for that is very beneficial in lots of ways. First, it kind of says, well, I have a medical condition. Um, and that sort of, alleviates a little bit of stress because it, it sort of says, well, you know, a medical condition is not my fault. Um, and, 
I'm not saying that without the label, it is one's fault, but it sort of it it's kind of gives one a little bit of peace of mind. It's also important then for the system, you know, for, you know, what do you say to your boss when you want to say, listen, I need to take the day off because I'm really not feeling well if you don't have a label. Um, also, how do you fill out your insurance form or, you know, get your, get help with medications if you don't have a label? So it's both psychologically extremely, it, it says, okay, now I know what's wrong with me. It's, it's a chemical imbalance in my brain caused, you know, resulting in depression. And this is what I need to do to get better. So there's so many ways that um, a label can help both just by the, the effect of a label psychologically and also the practical aspects. Um, of course, my concern is where a label can lead because people can embody labels, you know, because once if I go to my GP and they say, well, you suffer with depression and now that's on my notes um, and it's but more importantly, it's in my head. You know, then I can start to identify as a depressed person mm. rather than I think what what other cultures is quite a Western medical cultural thing to do is to think of depression as an, a thing inside your body, like due to chemical things in your brain. And the label can encourage you to think that way and then to start manifesting the symptoms of depression because you consider yourself to be a depressed person. I think of it the same way as, you know. Sometimes, you know, if you watch those reality TV shows and some people think they can sing, but they can't necessarily, you know, <laughs> nothing, you know, I'm always envious of those people, you know, they believe they can sing and they're, that gives them the confidence to go up there and do that. If I believe that I'm a depressed person, that can also make me act like a depressed person also can make me look up on Google, what are the other symptoms of depression and then start sort of inadvertently taking on those other labels. Mm. Um, whereas I would say that if I went to my doctor and I felt down, an approach that would work better, certainly for me, and but I think for many people, is if you say, well, I can't find any medical thing wrong with you. I don't need to label this. But is it worth you thinking about the things in your environment and the things in your life or what you can do to change to, to feel better? So I, I think people embody labels and they can create chronic illness. Once you once you have been labeled with something, it's actually quite hard to shake it off. Whereas if you see uh, a medical problem as situational, environmental, social, then it puts you in the driving seat. You know, I think depression caused by chemical imbalances takes me out, gives relieves me of any culpability, which feels nice. Um, but also potentially um, removes any sort of agency or control from me, whereas looking at some um, medical experiences or bodily experiences as situational or social, um, environmental, allows you to kind of look around and say, right, you know, is do I have control over any of this? And what can I do to change it? So I've actually forgotten what you asked me. <laughs> but that was the question. But my concern with labels is that people embody them. You know, someone mm -hmm. gives you a label. It's like, do you know what? Also, like growing up in big families, you know, there's the clever one, mm. there's the naughty one, there's the, you know, and that I, I think people can embody those. It's any label. Yeah. It becomes can. a self fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. And that's yeah. my concern with labels. And I should also, just to be clear, make, say that, you know, depression exists. 
But I'm making this distinction between severe depression, which is a medical illness that needs to be treated as a medical illness, and depression that is really just low mood, that is more related to situation. We're increasingly drawing everyone who's having a bad day into our depression label. Of course, there are people with severe depression. I do, would not wish for them to sort of deny that label or the treatment they're offered. It's the people in the very mild spectrum who are kind of being drawn in. Um, I think it, it, it's, it can be quite problematic. Um, and it's also highly cultural, you know, um, other cultures who don't subscribe so much to the Western medical culture are more likely to see feeling upset and feeling low in that mild spectrum as situational and to address it as such. Um, and I wonder if we shouldn't be learning from them. I think it will come as no surprise that one of my priorities is meditation and yoga. Not that I always find it easy to prioritise, because I really don't, but I do know that I'm a better person when I do, and my husband will probably back me up on that one. Anyway, I'm so thrilled that this episode is sponsored by my favourite yoga space in the world, Yoga on the Lane. They have a studio in East London, which I actually used to live across from, but they also have online classes and workshops. Their founder, Naomi Anand, I've been taking classes with for more than 15 years, and can honestly say she and her cohort are some of the most intuitive, welcoming and expert teachers I know. I'm also clearly not the only one to think this. Naomi is the author of two books, Yoga and Manual for Life and Yoga for Motherhood. So if you've never thought of getting on a mat before, or if you're a very seasoned practitioner, please do check them out. You won't regret it. www.yogaonthelane.com In my work, which is very different, of course, but I I work a lot with stress management. Mm. And one of the things that I um, encourage as much as possible is for people not to talk about how stressed they are. Mm. Because I do find that the more they talk about how stressed they are or how busy they are or how burnt out they are, the more they, as you say, embody that. It, it becomes a little mantra that they're telling themselves over and over and over again. And then it becomes very hard to break away from that sense of identity as well. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely 100% what I'm trying to say, said much more succinctly, 100% <laughs> agree. I even get, like I said earlier, there's some things I don't like doing. I hate dealing with people, work people in the house. I hate anything to do with the car because I don't know anything about them. And um, so sometimes I do feel that like, oh, I have this uh, insurmountable problem to solve. And as you say, you know, just doing it, but also um, not pathologizing it so much is the way forward. But yes, I 100% agree. Let's go back to this um, mind-body connection that is really lacking in in Western um, yes. Western medical field. I Why do you think that is? I think it's because um, we have this sort of culture of, um, first of all, Right, we're quite willing to recognize certain mind-body changes. So we know that sort of, you know, um, hmm, trying to think of an example now and I can't think of one. To a certain degree, we're able to recognize how the body changes with the mind. Um, but I think when it comes to particularly severe symptoms, we have a great deal of difficulty always accepting it because first of all 
there is, and this is completely wrong, there is a sort of perception that if somebody has severe physical symptoms for psychological reasons, that that is equated with madness, that's equated with weakness, that's equated with fragility. So, for example, if I see people with seizures, a very extreme form of a mind-body kind of um, interaction where patients' kind of psychological distress is so severe that their brain shuts down completely and they collapse on the ground and shake. Now, many of them are told that they have a diagnosis of epilepsy in the first instance because that's what most people think of when they see someone lying on the ground and shaking. Actually, a, a phenomenally common phenomenon is are things called dissociative seizures, which look like epileptic seizures, and they the brain shutting down for psychological reasons. Now, if you are again a sick person who's having seizures and falling on the ground, and you have to tell people that you know one minute you have epilepsy and then you have to ring up your boss or your insurer or your mother and and say, well, actually, I don't have epilepsy. I have this problem which is purely psychological. Society downgrades that immediately. The same thing is happening to you. You're falling on the ground and shaking. It's disabling and shouldn't be happening. But if I call it epilepsy, because everyone knows that's a serious brain disease, it, you know, it will get a certain amount of respect and sympathy. But the minute you change that diagnosis for the exact same identical symptom to one that is more psychological cause, I think, you know, the bottom line is that a lot of people's brains just go, oh, so it's not that serious after all, but the symptom is the same and the symptom is the problem. Mm. Um, and I think I actually read in your book that often dissociative seizures can be more severe oh, yeah. than epileptic ones. Well, that's it exactly. And, you know, so most 70% of people with epilepsy, if you put them on the appropriate medication, the seizures will go away. And it's not the same. Epilepsy is different in, in everybody, but let's say in 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 the sort of average person who attends a clinic with epilepsy will have a seizure every now and again. A person with dissociative seizures, seizures that have a psychological cause, only 30% chance of getting better. So significantly harder to treat. Um, they also have much more seizures. So a person with epilepsy might have a seizure every month or that's there are people with epilepsy who have them every day, but more usual every month or every year. People with dissociative seizures can have 20 a day. Um, Wow. So in many ways, they are way worse than epilepsy, with the one exception that epilepsy is occasionally results in death, very rarely, but occasionally, and dissociative seizures don't tend to. So you've got this kind of disorder, which has a psychological cause, which is more disabling and harder to treat. But if you tell people you have it, you know that your next door neighbor will be thinking, oh, she's not. I mean, I hear this all the time. Um, in the end, it, it it turned out there was nothing wrong with her. I hear this regularly, sort of, all oh, the tests came back as normal. She was told she had dissociative seizures. So you're saying there's nothing wrong. Well, no. <laughs> falling on the ground and shaking uh, 20 times a day is never nothing. But people hear it as nothing because of our attitude to psychosomatic disorders. We, we, must, we conflate them with faking as well. People don't understand that you know, psychosomatic symptoms are completely unconsciously generated, but people hear it as meaning that someone is faking. To that, I always say to people, you know, if you're frightened and your heart is racing, your heart is really racing and you're not doing it on purpose and you couldn't just stop it because I tell you to stop it. And that's what these psychosomatic symptoms are like. They're 
the thing that's happening to you is really happening, but not purposefully and not within your control. I also think that we have a a problem in Western culture with sort of being able to accept a degree of failure or mediocrity. You know, um, I will often see people with these sort of psychosomatic disorders are often very high achievers, although they tend to be viewed as fragile or or failed in some way. In fact, often highly intelligent, high achievers. Um, but what happens within Western societies, we have mantras like, oh, if you um, if you try hard enough, you'll always succeed. And and if you, for example, if you're writing a book, you'll be told a hundred times that, you know, um, J.K. Rowling's book was rejected X number, you know, a hundred publishers rejected J.K. Rowling for she found a publisher. So then what are you supposed to do? Assume your measly offering. If you just keep going, eventually someone will turn you into J.K. Rowling. Well, the truth is she's the exception, not the rule. So we kind of create this kind of society where it's hard to be seen to not be very good at something or to admit that maybe your choices weren't right and that perhaps you should make different choices. And when that, that also, I think if you ask a general slice of the population where they think they land from like, mm. you know, wherever to exceptional, they all think they're above average. Do you think that? <laughs> people think that they are above average, which obviously is not possible. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I, I didn't know that, but yeah, that's precisely, and that's Western kind of culture for us. And, you know, sometimes in those circumstances, when it's very difficult to admit to yourself, your choices aren't right, or perhaps you've overstretched yourself, um, physical symptoms can come to intervene in that situation if it's mm -hmm. too difficult, especially in young people, you know, teenagers doing their A-levels, young people in university, they've got their mom and their dad behind them. They're going, oh, she's the brightest. She's the cleverest. She's mm -hmm. going to be the next prime minister. And, you know, you've come from a school where you were always the best. And now you're sort of more in the middle. It can be, that can be a very difficult situation to find yourself in because you have to kind of say, well, have I made the right choices? And those are circumstances in which physical symptoms can sometimes intervene to advise you that you're pushing yourself too hard or you've made the wrong choices. And it, those are circumstances in which I'll often see people develop significant psychosomatic illness, which I consider as a sort of body telling you, you're doing something wrong and you need to change something. Um, but then they become medicalized into some um, presumed disease that cannot be found. And when you find yourself in that circumstance, it can be very hard to get out of it. Because mm. if people won't like listen to the wisdom of the body, but then when they will, it becomes, it can become just a much bigger, more significant thing because they need this label. Well, I think it is psychologically. Yeah, sorry, I'm thinking of um, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, I, ha I mean, I have heard so much about that book. I'm shame. I'm I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it, <laughs> but I think that basically our bodies are telling us a story. They are. Um, yeah. Our bodies are telling us that um, they sometimes tell us when something is wrong, and we can listen to them in different ways. Um, I'm thinking of a story in in my book, The Sleeping Beauty. So I went to Kazakhstan and visited a town. Um, of people who had this kind of mass contagious sleeping sickness. So this whole town of people 
one person fell asleep and couldn't be woken up for a few days. They were extensively medically investigated. Nothing was found. Someone said, well, maybe it was a stroke, you know, but no one found evidence of a stroke. And it wasn't really the typical symptoms of a stroke, but they were reaching for answers. And then shortly after, somebody else got sick with an illness that couldn't be explained. Someone put this together and decided there was a contagious illness going around the town. And then person after person after person started falling asleep inexplicably. They had really, you know, good medical facilities. So they had tons of scans, blood tests. In fact, and this is what happens really when I'm talking about over-medicalization and diagnosis, people were so in disbelief that there wasn't a disease causing this that people could have five brain scans. You know, is one normal brain scan not enough? But we just keep going because the disbelief in psychosomatic conditions is 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 so strong and the need to find a, a disease explanation is so strong. So people have many, 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 many tests, all normal. And I think over the course, I've forgotten the numbers, but over 100, I think it was 133 people in this town got a contagious sleeping sickness. Now, I would say that... And it was a very, very small town. A, a town of 300 people, yes. It was pretty amazing. And basically, it was... Um, I would say as a doctor, having looked at their medical tests and heard their stories, that this was clearly psychosomatic and that these new symptoms were based on suggestion. You know, if you know there's a contagious illness going through your town and you know the symptoms of it, you know, what's the first thing you do is you start searching yourself for the symptoms and then potentially manifesting them. Um, but what was interesting for me about it was that, you know, I visited that town and I'm like extremely my cultural identity as a as a person and um, as a doctor is entirely Western medical. So I'm dying to foist on these people my version of events, which is this is what the brain is doing. And then the brain does this and there's nothing disease wrong with your brain, but it's just tricks your brains playing on you. And, you know, I'm loving to couch all of this in terms of internal bodily changes. Um when what was actually happening in this town was that these people needed to leave the town. It was a dying town, but they had a deep emotional connection to it for many historical reasons. And, you know, they were in that point a bit like I always think, like leaving a marriage where you obviously love this person a lot. And it was obvious there's someone incredibly important to you, but you realize it's over. But how do you make yourself leave? You know, can't is it possible you can rekindle this? Can this town be brought alive again? Can this marriage be brought back to how it was? And that's a very difficult point to be at. And I think this that's the point the town was at when they developed the illness. They realized they had to leave, but they found it too difficult. And the illness came along to solve a problem for them. The illness came along to say to them, something isn't right and you need to make a change. So they one by one, they left the town and recovered. They never acknowledged that this was a psychosomatic problem in any way. They said the town was poisoned and that's why when they left the town, they recovered. But in that circumstance, you know, physical symptoms come along to tell you something and you don't necessarily have to consciously unpick all of that. You don't have to say, well, you know, this is is um, exactly what's happening to me in a, in a neurobiological way. You just have to try and understand. You look at your formulation for why the symptoms have occurred. And these people's formulation was that the government was poisoning the town to get them out. That was telling them something. It was telling them they had to either stay there and be unhealthy or they had to leave. And they left and they got better. So sometimes I think that these symptoms are your body is telling you something and you need to figure out what it's telling you and respond to that. As a medical doctor, 
in the UK, I do that in way too a medical way. You know, I want to with people like that. I want to go, why would the government poison you? Why? You know, that's not necessarily always the right thing to do. Sometimes that's the right thing. You have to figure out who you are. Do you respond better to sort of understanding the kind of scientific thing that's happening inside your brain? Do do things couch that way make the most amount of sense to you? Or do you believe more in, in the sort of how the environment is affecting you? And do you need to focus on that and figure out what changes to make? The bottom line is I think these physical symptoms, they're the body speaking to you. They're telling you you're doing something wrong and that something needs to change. And that sometimes the answer to that is medical, if that's your culture or the way you think. And sometimes the answer to that is to sort of look at your understanding of the symptoms and follow the story of those symptoms to the conclusion that you believe will make you better. So that's slightly weird things to say as a doctor, I think, because I think we're supposed to say, here's a, here's a, uh, an aspirin or, uh, but I think sometimes we just have to listen. Our body is telling us something. We just need to listen. I knew someone who had ME very severely for five years and she ended up in a, in a, um, sort of caring home in a completely black, darkened room, everything. No light was allowed in. She couldn't talk, barely have visitors. And she, um, her family found out something called the lightning process and did that. And the next day she was up and around and talking. It's amazing. Able to be in light, which is absolutely staggering. But I think very much of that when you talk about finding a solution, because Emmy is, is a, as you say, an absolutely real thing. I know a couple of people who have had it to varying degrees and is normally caused by something physical. But then the continuity of that is this mind-body connection. Yeah. Is that correct? And yeah, so the lightning process, for anyone who doesn't know, is, well, I don't know exactly what goes into it. You probably know a lot more, Suzanne, but it is a talking therapy. Yeah, I don't, I don't use the lightning process, so I don't actually know what happens in it. But I agree, you know, not everyone would agree. Um, but I agree with what you've said. I mean, I think some people consider ME to be an entirely immunological. I, I, I don't agree with that. Um, I agree with what you just said, which is that, you know, there's a, a trigger of some sort, and that could be a viral illness, which is quite a common thing. Um, and for some people, that re- leads to a fatigue process, which is just a, a short-lived post-viral syndrome, which pretty much is quite common. Um, but for some people, that post-viral fatigue syndrome can lead through the sort of focus on the symptoms and the way you respond to the symptoms and the way the less you do, the less you're able to do. So there's loads of physiological changes and there's behavioral changes when you're sick and that sometimes those physiological and behavioral changes can inadvertently make you you sicker. Um, And then you need to find your way out. Um, And that way out will be different for everyone. And it's nice to hear that there, you know, and, and actually I should also reiterate what you said earlier, which is, I think some people hear things like ME and chronic fatigue syndrome, and they think this, um, they kind of laugh at it. They don't consider it a real thing. If you've ever met anyone or seen anyone with a condition like that, there is nothing more disabling and life destroying than it. So for, but, but, you know, society is not impressed by 
severe illness that comes with completely normal tests and no objective evidence for disease. You know, if you tell someone that you have diabetes or, you know, and these are serious things that deserve um, attention and sympathy, but people are easily impressed by that because we understand what's happening in the body, cancers, etc., because we feel horrified by those things because we know how serious they are. But you can have people with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, as you say, they lie in bed for years in darkened rooms, unable to function at all. And people are unimpressed by that. How how does the it's just it's astonishing. What is the world thinking? We are unimpressed by the degree of suffering. We are more impressed by the degree of abnormalities on tests. And I think if we could kind of change that attitude, then um, people with psychosomatic disorders would have more research and more intensive therapy. And, you know, if you have uh, an illness like um, epilepsy, for example, there are weights you should, you know, no one with epilepsy will ever have to wait two years for treatment because that would be considered to be an absolute outrage. That would be front of every newspaper. Um, but if you have dissociative seizures or a psychosomatic condition, you could quite easily wait two years for treatment. And after two years, it's very hard to treat something. And that's because we're only really impressed by diseases that where we can see the changes in the blood tests and on the scan and where we really understand them. Um, but uh, I think that needs to change. Do you think that's also to do with the individualist approach that we have in the West to society? I'm not sure it's to do. I think it's to do with the um, the culture of um, not this culture of perfectionism and achievement is one of the problems. This also, this com complete conflating psychosomatic with something done deliberately um, is really problematic. I think people still don't completely believe that there isn't some insight in these disorders. Um, yes. No, I think. Yeah. The idea that someone can just snap out of it. Yeah, I think it's the idea they can just or or the idea that a seizure that's happening for psychological reason is somehow. I don't understand it, which is probably why I'm trying having difficulty explaining it. But let's say the reason I'm struggling to explain it because I see people with these disorders. So let's say I see a dissociative seizure patient and they they are having 20 seizures a day and it's horrific to watch. I'm videoing it. and I'm having to actually watch it. Um, versus an epileptic seizure, which is equally horrific, and they both should be um, taken very seriously. Um, but for some reason, in the minds of people who don't have to see them, um, they just have no urgency when it comes to dissociative seizures. And I, I don't fully understand why it is. Um, because, yeah, maybe it's because they think people can snap out of it, or maybe they're blaming those people in some way. And that's why people are very legitimately rejecting the diagnosis regularly because why wouldn't you if you think you'll have to wait two years for treatment with this diagnosis where you'll get a tablet tomorrow with this other diagnosis or people mm. will disrespect you with one diagnosis but not with the other i i'm not sure that i fully understand where the complete lack of urgency is and i think it's also because no one's ever seen it but if it happens to a loved one of yours it's utterly unbelievable because it's when you see it for yourself, it's the first time you realize how serious this is. Mm. The idea that like physical disease is serious and 
illness and mental stuff is not well that's that it, it can wait that it can you know that it can be put off i mean we're paid we we're much better now i think talking about mental health problems etc you know and i think there's quite a lot of lip service you you see an awful lot more now people in the news and um, politicians in response to celebrities celebrities say that they felt depressed and then politicians say we're going to prioritize this um i think there's a lot of lip service paid but if you actually look you know if you need cbt for something you know cbt lists regularly just shut down because they're so um they're so inundated with referrals that they just stop taking referrals um you know the waits for something that's mental health related in the nhs could be 2 years you know patients with functional disorders or psychosomatic disorders affecting the nervous system might wait 2 years for treatment and we wouldn't countenance that for any other medical condition if you just said well you know i'm closing down my epilepsy clinic and because it's too full and all the epilepsy patients can just find somewhere else to go my god that would be an outrage but but that happens all the time with mental health conditions so i think we're getting better at pretending we we think they're equal but i don't think we're getting better at at really putting our our money where our mouth is yeah yeah and we live more in a cure rather than prevention society yeah um well yes i think sort of um we're getting better and better at prevention i think um but there i think people must also take a little bit of responsibility i think you know there are now a lot of sort of systems for sort of um advising us on our weight and our smoking and our alcohol intake and so forth um i would like people to take a little bit more responsibility for themselves in that regard as well um because i think it's quite easy to look at um health services and governments and say well they're not doing enough but um we're also adults and we also need to take some responsibility for our own lives i'm also a little bit concerned in an entirely practical way um about how how you fund the nhs when you keep adding new things that that the health service has to be entirely responsible for i mean there's only so much money going around um i would like us as a as a as a society mm. also step up a bit to take some responsibility for ourselves i'd love to ask you and um, we've not got very long left but so much to ask you i'd love to ask you um to talk a little bit about how your priorities and opinions of the world have shifted through your patients yeah i mean 100% it's kind of what i've been saying all along really it's just i definitely started out as this kind of i've gone through a trajectory with psychosomatic illness and the trajectory was that when i was a junior doctor i didn't completely you know if someone said their legs were paralyzed but you know there were lots of clinical features to say that they had the capability to move their legs but couldn't i went through the sort of watching them from the corner of my eye thinking oh they'll move when they think i'm not looking and is sort of being suspicious of patients to then meeting enough patients to realize these disabilities are really serious then into when i wrote my first book it's all in your head it was very much about the kind of psychological what in interactions between our psychological well-being and our physical well-being and how that leads to disability 
and therefore kind of contributing to the thing I was saying I don't want to contribute to in your very first question, which is this very heavy medicalized explanation for things. Um, and then whereas now I, so I very much in my first book was meeting patients who had these disorders and giving them physiological explanations and giving them labels. Um, but then I traveled the world and I met other communities that had strange medical things happening to them that explained them in very different ways to us through spiritual um, explanations or, you know, believing the government is poisoning you. And that was when I started thinking, I've got to be less medical and less prescriptive and less, um, less sort of kind of trying to force my opinions on my patients about sort of what's happening to them and listen to more to their formulations. So I'm kind of becoming less medical with time. I've gone through a kind of trajectory of being suspicious of the patients to being hyper medicalized and focused on their brains to, to a point where I think, you know, when a patient comes to me now, the most important thing for me to understand is their formulation. Um, and, you know, it, it, however things evolve, that formulation needs to be understood if someone is going to get better. And because if you don't understand it, you can't kind of work with it. So I really want to start encouraging doctors to, and again, I have not in any way mastered this, is to work with their patients' formulations um, of what's going on because symptoms are can sometimes be a metaphor. And if you can't work within that metaphor, you just end up in a, a very big argument with your patients. And I guess that's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in day-to-day -day life to work with nuance, let alone, you know, when when it's part of your career and where the stakes are so high if someone's coming to you as well. Yeah, it is extremely difficult. And as I say, I am a long way from <laughs> being the master of it. <laughs> I'm such a literal person, you know, it's just like practical, literal, that I'm working on it. <laughs> One of the things I liked reading in your in your third book, Sleeping Beauties, after having read your first book, was you saying that, you know, you're trying to encourage people to expand their awareness of the mind-body connection and, and these psychosomatic, very real illnesses, and how after writing that first book, you had loads of people coming to you now thinking that their disease-related health issues were yeah. psychosomatic because now they wanted a new sort of label yeah. for it. I mean, doctors are very powerful. I mean, you know, so if you create a condition and you, you know, let's say I've, I haven't, but let's say that, you know, I have this kind of psychosomatic syndrome that I've created. The minute you create a label like that, then there's a lot of people out there trying to understand what, again, we're back to sort of trying to make sense of things is important to us. And there's a lot of people out there trying to make sense of something that's happened in their life, be it a failure, be it a physical symptom, whatever. It's a difference in them. To, uh, that is perceived to other people and the minute you you start talking about some medical condition you know a lot of people contact you and say I think I have what you're described but the, what was weird is that when I looked at what was in their letters you know that it was nothing like anything I had written about at all and I, I realized that I could easily create a cult of people who were all subscribing to my ideas I'm trying to put an idea out there for people to think about. I'm not trying to create myself as a, the world's biggest expert um, or create sort of a, a big private practice of people who want to see me. <laughs> Just trying to say, think about this when you get sick. But I could see that I was inadvertently creating 
you know, a whole new bunch of people who thought they had what I was describing. Um, but that was important to me, therefore, in the third book is that I dismantled that again, said, like, don't, you know, um, you know, avoid the labels, try and stay away from them because they they can make you very sick. I think we might um, leave it on that because that feels like a very good piece of advice for everyone. Okay. Thank you so much for talking Thanks, to Anna. me, Suzanne. If you enjoyed this episode of Priorities, I'd really appreciate it if you could make it your priority today to hit subscribe and also rate and review as this helps other people find it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.